Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Back into our series on the book of Revelation, and uh, I'm basically doing a chapter a week. And uh, last week, I actually got a bit into chapter 7 and uh, introduced a little bit there this, this very odd passage. This, the first half of, of chapter 7 is, you know, Christians for centuries have, have not known really what to do with it. There's so many different interpretations of it, but it's this passage about these 144,000 Jews. And it's like, what are we supposed, who are sealed on their foreheads? And so last week, I just got into that a little bit. And, uh, and so today, we're going to do all of chapter 7, and we're, we're going we're to go back, and we're going to touch on that 144,000. But before we do, I wanted to take a, a pause in the first half of this message and I wanted to reset some groundwork, some things I've already been saying in this series, but some really foundational stuff that really applies to how do we interpret. There's, there's certain places in Revelation that are fairly, that are easier, I shouldn't say uh, easy maybe, but that there's many passages in Revelation that are, are pretty straightforward, even with the symbolism, it's pretty straightforward how you're supposed to interpret them. But there's a, there's a few passages like the 144,000 that depending on your viewpoint, depending on the set of glasses you have on when you read these passages, it's going to really influence how you're going to interpret it. And so I want to spend, and and that's important for the whole book of Revelation, I want you to really see uh, the glasses I've put on and why I've put them on, how I'm reading these chapters, and then it will make more sense how we interpret some of these difficult ones like the 144,000. And, uh, and, and another reason I want to do this is because some of you may have noticed already, uh, if you were in my end times course, five years ago exactly uh, this month, I did, a, I did an end times course. And, uh, and the vast majority of that stuff, I did a, a lot of study for a few years into putting that course together. Uh, and the vast majority of it, you know, 95% of it, I haven't changed at all. It's, I, I think it's just very, very biblical. But I have tweaked a few things, and there's a few places where my uh, perspective on Revelation has changed for some biblical reasons, and I want to just be upfront with that and show you those things, and then you'll understand more some of the context of how I'm coming to things. So um, how I've changed, it's not a radical change, but it's an addition to how I view the book of Revelation is I used to view it all as, you know, basically all as in the future, Okay, and I still continue to regard, you know, basically the entire book is about the future, but I've, but there's more to it than just the future. And many, many of the most, you know, popular, godly Bible teachers today view it all as futuristic. So I'm not against that at all or anything, but because of things that John says himself in the book of Revelation, I actually have come now to a place where I believe it is all about the future, but I also believe it's basically all also about the present. I believe it's both present and future. And that's already been coming out in this series repeatedly. But I want to show you why I see that from inside the book. And so if we go to back to Revelation chapter 1 here for just a, a minute here at the beginning of this message, Revelation 1.3 says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So we see that word prophecy. It certainly is about the future. And I haven't changed that. that there's, there's no question that this book is pointing ahead to a final culminating clash between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom, and God's kingdom is going gonna, is gonna to win and overcome. There's no question that is a primary focus of, of the book. However, he goes on to say, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Now, 
over the years, any preacher who sees the book as, you know, being almost entirely future really has to wrestle with that statement. And I've wrestled with it over the years as well. And you try to find things in the book. If it's all about the future, you've got to really look hard and try and find things in there that can be obeyed. And basically, the only things to obey in that case are the letters to the churches in the first three chapters. But John here clearly says, and who keep what is written in it. The, the sense is that the entire book uh, is, you know, throughout the book is to be kept, is to be obeyed. And the blessing isn't just for reading it. The blessing is for obeying it. And so in the past, when I only viewed it as future, that was a difficult thing. And you would look here or there for things to apply, but it never really totally fit. And then the next phrase, he says, for the time is near. Okay, for the time is near. And this is another thing. If you are all futurist about the book of Revelation, then you have trouble with that phrase. How can the time be near? Here we are 2,000 years later, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. So how can he say the time is near? Now, usually if you're all futurist, the way you wrestle with it, the way I have wrestled with it in the past is, well, the time is near, and that's talking about God's time, because in God's time, a 1,000 years is like a day, right? But really, you know what that's called? That's called cheating. When God says something, he, does he not mean it? I mean, if he can change the meaning of near to be something that's actually thousands of years away, how can we trust any of his promises? Like when God says to you, I'm soon about to help you and your family, do you have to ask him a follow-up question that says, and by soon, do you mean a couple of thousand years after I'm dead, or do you mean like soon, right? Like, does God speak to us plainly to us, or does he not? And so when he says here the time is near, there has to be some aspect, and not just a piece here or there, but there has to be some kind of a flow throughout the whole book, okay? There has to be a flow throughout the book that can be obeyed, not just a couple little pieces. There has to be a flow throughout the book that had to have been near to the first century believers. Now, of course, some Christians, as with everything, you always have extremes on both sides. Some Christians have emphasized this last line here that the time is near, and they have gone overboard, and they've said there's no futuristic aspect to the book of Revelation. It all had to have happened in the lifetime of the first century believers, and that is its own extreme, because there's no question that it is a book of prophecy, as he says in this passage, and there's no question there are many things, you know, that final clash between the beast empire and Jesus, and Jesus returns the last bunch of chapters there, and the new heavens and new earth come down, or the new, the, 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 the new Jerusalem comes down. It, clearly that's happened. Now, some of these people, they call themselves preterists. We don't need to get into all that. They actually think that all of those are symbolic passages that have already happened, which to me is one of the most depressing doctrines you could possibly believe. If chapter 21, the new Jerusalem, has come down to earth already, and God has already wiped away our tears then it's, it's a real letdown for me. Because what on earth are we looking forward to if this is it, okay? So there is clearly a very end time final focus, and yet at the same time, so somehow we have to hold these things in tension. And, and you've been seeing me already in this series trying to hold this tension. Everywhere we interpret the book of Revelation, we have to allow it to be prophetic, warning us of the future, but also present, and so if we interpret it in ways that it is only present or past, or if we interpret it in ways that it is only future, we're actually going to miss what it's actually saying, according to John himself, who said it's a prophecy, but also the time is near. So there has to be a present-future aspect, lens on. One lens present, one lens future, as we read, and we have to bring those things together to get a proper picture of what Revelation is saying to us, all right? Really, really important. Now... Some of you may be wrestling with this and you're going, 
uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You did that enzyme course five years ago, and you didn't have it 100% correct. And that maybe bothers you. Maybe it makes you even feel a little unsettled. Like, we go to church. How do we know that any of your messages are 100% correct? So let me just help you with that. I bet you none of my messages are 100% correct. And if you're looking for 100% correct, then you should stop going to church and you should just wait for Jesus to come back because he's the only one that knows everything. And I think a more important thing, now here's the thing, here's why I'm not worried because you say, well, well, what if you're getting something wrong today? Well, no doubt I will be. I'm, I'm 40, so I, I feel like I have a higher percentage than I did when I was 30 and 35. But when I'm 50, I'm sure I'll look back at 40 and say I've got a higher percentage than when I was 40. So we're growing. But here's, here's why I don't worry about us being imperfect in the church. I don't worry about it because if, we, if our intentions are good and we keep pressing into the word and we keep making the word number one, then what's going to happen is even when we get it wrong, as long as we're humble enough to admit it and change it later, God's going to bear fruit out of this stuff even when we get it wrong. And I'll share with you just a quick story. I've shared this before, so I won't take too much time, but I think it illustrates it just perfectly. And I'll share with you how I got saved. I got saved when I was, a, I was five years old. We went to a Baptist church in southern Ontario. My dad was not the pastor there. Um, but it was like, when I say Baptist, there are Baptists and then there are Baptists. And usually in Canada, the Baptists aren't like Baptists. Like this is like, this was an American pastor. I don't say that in any way disparagingly, uh, but there's just, there's just a way that, that, that you can have like Baptist. And that was, you know, my mom would only wear a dress and the pastor yelled lots in church, okay? And uh, I remember him yelling, again, I've told this before, but I remember him being so, five years old, okay? And, and when I say Baptist, again, remember, this is one of those Baptist churches where you went to church Sunday morning and you went Sunday night and it was two different messages, okay? And there was no kids ministry in the evening one. So here I am, five years old, I'm sitting on wooden pews and I'm watching Pastor Barber, who was a man of God and loved God and loved the word. And I'm watching him pound on this wooden pulpit one time so hard that he broke it. He held up, held up pieces of this wooden pulpit that he had pounded in his passion for God. And the awe of the Lord just really came over me, okay? And I was like, this is how preaching is to be done. I mean, it's just not the way Canadians, we don't do it that way. We like to have, you know, plastic pulpits, and I certainly don't punch it. But, uh, but anyway, one, uh, one Sunday night... Uh, he got onto the topic of hell, and of course, in that church, because it was Baptist, Baptist, it was a three-piece suit for sure for the pastor and all the ushers and the deacons and, and just most of the men in general. Um, and he got preaching, and he preached, like, and, and hell was, was, it was, and he was preaching hell. And he, he got so worked up, he was walking up and down the aisles. I remember him coming by, and just, he was, he was going for it. In the back of his suit, the sweat went through all three layers. And by the end of the message, you could see it on the back of his suit. Okay, that's how how intense it was, and I went home that night absolutely terrified. And you know what came out of that? I got saved. Now, that's some good fruit, is it not? I was also anxious for the next five years of my life, almost incessantly, about hell. And, uh, but even that God used for good, okay? He, that's the first time I ever heard God's voice was out of that, and I've shared that story before too. Now, do I agree entirely with the method of presentation. Well, to be, to be honest with you, I mean, I would never allow any of our pastors, especially in kids' ministry, to ever preach hell that way. Just so you know, okay? I mean, I talked to a guy here in our church. He didn't do this at our church. This was at his Sunday school at a different church. I just want to make that clear. But his Sunday school teacher had, him, had them all pass their fingers through a candle flame. And then he said, and that will be like hell over your whole body for eternity, okay? I don't agree with that methodology, I don't see it preached that way in here. 
I just don't see it done that way. I don't see in the book of Acts them, you know, you know, really trying to terrify people with hell. And yet, did, our, did that pastor in a Baptist church, did he absolutely love Jesus? And was he committed to the word? He absolutely was. He absolutely was. He was preaching it as he understood it and being faithful in the best way he knew. And the fruit was, I got saved. And you know what? God is always doing that in his church because we're always imperfect. And as long as we're seeking and growing and humble, then he's going to speak to us even through our mistakes now. Amen? So I think that's why I'm not worried about that. But anyway, now the question comes up, how can Revelation be about both the present and the future? Like now it seems like you're just talking nonsense. Like it feels like we have to pick a side. It's either all about, you know, stuff that happened in the first century or it's all about the future. But how can something be both present and future at the same time? And I'm going to use an example, and then we're going to get back and we're going to apply this stuff in Revelation 7 because it really helps to see what, what John is actually trying to say through the 144,000, okay? Um, but the reason, the way that Revelation can be both present and future is because what Revelation does is it, re- first of all, reveals a pattern of how Satan works and how Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom clash. It reveals a pattern that happens throughout history and then points the head towards a very specific final culmination of that pattern in the final days just before Jesus returns when a final, you know, uh, satanic empire will rise up and Jesus will crush it and rescue us all. Okay, and I want to show you this with just one example. I'm going to talk about the Antichrist. Again, that's not the point of this message. You have to take a bunch of notes. Okay, at the end of this message, I'm actually going to put up a slide. I don't want anyone to get overwhelmed with details. And I'm going to sum up the main things about chapter 7 and 144,000 in this message. For now, I just want you to listen. So you don't have to follow all this stuff. I just want to show you an example of how this can work. How there can be a pattern in history of how Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom clash, and yet there still be a futuristic aspect to scriptural prophecy where there's a final fulfillment of that pattern, okay? And if we use the Antichrist, I'll show you this scripturally. We'll start in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. And John says this, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So already in the first century AD, the church was talking about Antichrist. By the way, interesting thing, this word Antichrist, do you know that the only author in all Scripture doesn't, the word Antichrist never pops up in the book of Revelation. It never pops up in any of Paul's writings. It only pops up here in 1 John and in 2 John, okay? And this is one of the only four verses in the Bible that actually use the word Antichrist. But anyway... Children, is the last hour. Have you heard that Antichrist is coming? So they had already been talking about this in the early church, that an Antichrist is coming. But now he adds something to it. He says, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, based on, you know, some passages like this. Now, when you look at it closely, you can see he's not saying there isn't one Antichrist coming in the future. He's not saying there isn't one. He's just adding information. He's saying there's actually many. And, in, and already in the first century, he's saying many have come already in their day. Okay? But a lot of academics these days, a lot of scholars have sort of rejected. They don't like the Bible to be too much about the future because to them it seems kind of strange or weird or whatever. And so a lot of them have kind of walked away from the idea of an antichrist before Jesus returns. However, when I was taking seminary courses at uh, Providence, uh, one of my favorite profs there, I took a, uh, a course on the book of Revelation, 
And he talked in there about how earlier in his academic career, he had kind of walked away from the idea of an actual Antichrist in the future based on verses like this. Even though this verse doesn't say there won't be one, it just says there's many. And he said, actually, there's this Antichrist spirit, but there isn't one Antichrist in the end. However, he changed his mind about, their, about that and, and decided that actually it's very biblical that there must be one in the future. And I'll show you this. And again, this is just an example I'm going to use. Then we get to Revelation. So don't worry about these details too much, okay? But he changed his mind when he, when he read in 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to read you a little chunk here from 2 Thessalonians 2. Because the question is, is there one Antichrist or many? Is there one in the future or are there many all along? Is it possible for things in the Bible to be present and future? And uh, this is what 2 Thessalonians... By the way, 2 Thessalonians, it's always good to read passages from this, uh, from this book. Because a lot of people think Revelation is the only book that talks about the end times. But of course, they'd be wrong. Jesus talked about the end times but also, this is Paul. This isn't Revelation. This isn't the Gospels. And here, Paul is giving a lengthy discourse on the end times. And he's going to talk about the Antichrist. But anyway, let's look at this. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 1. And Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. I just underlined that word, that phrase, day of the Lord. Remember last week we talked about that in the message, how there's this huge theme in the Old Testament prophets about the coming day of the Lord, a day of wrath when God would return and crush the kingdom of evil. Here we see another New Testament reference to it, and Paul is specifically tying that day, you look in line one there, to the coming of Jesus and our being gathered to him, which is the resurrection. So Paul is specifically saying those day of the Lord prophecies are going to happen Specifically, that's what Jesus' return and our resurrection happens on that day. Okay, it's a real day. Now, verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, now, will not come. So the reason Paul is writing this letter is because the Thessalonians have gotten scared. They're scared because somebody has been teaching them that they missed the day of the Lord, that they missed the resurrection, that they missed Jesus' return, and uh, that it happened already. Maybe it was symbolic. Maybe it was this or that. And so they're worried. Did we miss it? And Paul's writing them a letter. No, don't let anyone deceive you. And he's going to say, it hasn't come. You can't miss the day of the Lord because some things have to happen first. That's his argument. So he goes on and he says, uh, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And now look at this, very interesting. Unless the man of lawlessness. Now, uh, Paul does not use the word here, antichrist. Again, that's sort of in, in popular Christian culture. Now we have come to, to term this person the Antichrist, but in the, in the Bible, they don't, they don't use that, that term that much. In Revelation, he's the beast. You know, in, in Daniel, he's a beast. Um, and here, Paul calls him two things. The man of lawlessness, not, not many, not a, uh, the, is revealed. The son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, Paul's argument here is that you haven't missed Jesus' return. There's an actual person in, a fu- in the future. And, and he actually calls him the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. So this is a very, very bad man, okay? And he's actually going to proclaim himself to be God and, and demand that people worship him. This is, now remember in Matthew 24, Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation. The end times is not complicated. This is a very specific event that will lead to a time of tremendous tribulation, okay? Paul's talking about this and he says, if, that, if you haven't seen that man, then Jesus hasn't returned. And he goes on to say this, and then he reminds them, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Like just a little bit of a rebuke. 
Like, didn't you write it down? Now, it's also interesting about that phrase, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? In other words, Paul was talking about this in the church. To him, the return of Jesus and the Antichrist was part of the discipleship process. It's something actually churches are supposed to talk about it. Remember, we talked about it, he says. Okay? Actually, can you, Al, can you put that verse up there so they can actually see it? I was assuming that they could see it there. It's verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? All right? And then he goes on to say this, verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. Now, this is one of those places where I wish Paul would just write it out. And you know what is restraining him now. Actually, we don't, Paul. But the Thessalonians did because they had talked about it. So the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then, he says it again, the lawless one will be revealed when the Lord Jesus will kill him, or whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So specifically, this lawless man, this son of destruction, will, it will come to power right at the end of the age, and Jesus will actually destroy this specific person at his second coming on the day of the Lord. Okay? So this is not the book of Revelation, this is not the Gospels, this is Paul, this is New Testament theology, and according to Paul, it's something actually churches are supposed to talk about. We shouldn't obsess over it, it's not the only thing we should talk about, Paul didn't talk about it in any of the rest of his letters, but it's something we should know, okay? So now we go back to 1 John 2.18. 1 John 2.18 says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And now this passage uh, makes sense. We've got a both and here. What we have is there is, Paul clearly says, and we're going to see it in Revelation when we get later in the book, there is a final culmination when a terrible man empowered by Satan will rise up and oppose God and demand worship in the world, and Jesus will actually destroy him personally when he returns. But in the meantime, there have been already many antichrists. And even in our day today, the Antichrist spirit is at work. And anytime you look, well, I'm going to show you one more thing in Revelation. Let's go to Revelation now. And I'm going to show you again. The, the point is not these details now. We're going to go back into chapter 7 in just a moment. But the point is, I'm, I'm showing you an example. And I'll, and I'll bring it home and show you how present and future work together. But Revelation 13 verse 1 confirms this thing about present and future. And different Antichrists throughout time. And John says this, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. So this beast, this, this, this satanic empire has seven heads. Now what, what do the seven heads represent? Well, if we go to chapter 17, he explains it. The beast that you saw back in chapter 13 was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. This calls for a mind with wisdom. These seven heads, so this, this antichrist spirit, satanic spirit empire has seven heads, and the reason it has seven heads is the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, seven different kings, five of whom have fallen. Now, John's writing this in the first century, so five kings have already come and gone. And then he says, one is. Now, clearly there, he's identifying something in the present. He's saying, one of these kings is right now, and he is clearly speaking of the Roman emperor. He's speaking of the Roman empire. And all of his first century readers are certainly identifying one of these beast heads as being the Roman Empire. But then he doesn't stop there. He says the other has not yet come, so there's still one in the future. It's happening right now. This beast, this Antichrist Empire has had what he's saying here. Now, he's focusing on seven. Now, we'll see when we get to this chapter. My point isn't to, you know, 
uh, preach this passage yet. We'll get there eventually, but, um, but the point is not that there's, there's only seven. We're going to see why he focuses on seven. But like John said in 1 John 2.18, there have been many antichrists. Every time an evil tyrant rises up and oppresses Christians and oppresses his people and hates God, he is operating in the antichrist spirit. And so we can see many examples of this. Hitler would be an example of antichrist spirit. There's no question. Uh, a guy who has no influence or power in Germany overnight rises to power and within a decade he's conquered most of Europe, is trying to take over the world and trying to exterminate all Jews and persecuting Christians. That is antichrist spirit. And any believer in Europe who's reading the book of Revelation in the 1930s and 1940s can certainly go there and see a pattern and can identify and say, this is Antichrist. Okay? Stalin, Mao, all these guys, Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, these are all operating as Antichrist. So Revelation now, the way it's present future is it reveals patterns of the way Satan's kingdom, the way Satan works. See, Jesus and Satan work very differently. Jesus is born in a manger, and he works with shepherds and carpenters and fishermen. Satan works with the levers of power in this world. He works through the Herods and the Caesars. And that's why the battle, the battle between God and Satan is fought very differently. God loves to use the humble and the small. Satan loves to use the violent and the big. And this pattern is revealed in the book of Revelation. So Revelation reveals the pattern of conflict between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom while also pointing ahead to the specific final culmination of that conflict. Now, in the past, and this is really important to understand about the book of Revelation. In the past, many people who don't like to think of book as futuristic, they point to all the times in the past when Christians have identified the Antichrist and gotten it wrong. Here's what I would say about most of those Christians who were getting it wrong. They actually weren't getting it wrong. They were getting it right. They just weren't getting the future one right. When the reformers said the Catholic Church is the Antichrist back in the 1400s and 1500s and, and all of that, they were right. I'm not saying, by the way, whoa, that's politically incorrect. I'm not saying the Catholic Church today is the Antichrist. I certainly do not believe it is the final one. There are many ways that it is not. But in that time, the Pope and his cardinals were persecuting real believers in awful ways. And they were doing terrible things. And so when the reform broke out and the reformers are looking in their Bibles and they're reading Revelation and they're seeing lots of parallels and they're calling out Antichrist, they actually were right. They weren't wrong. And when the first century readers read the book of Revelation and said, the Antichrist is Caesar, they were right. They weren't right that he was the final one right before Jesus came back, but they were identifying the Antichrist spirit at work in him that operates in that way. And in many ways, then, the book comes alive, and you can be encouraged to see how God deals with these men and deals with these kingdoms and his ultimate victory. It is both present and future. Now, there's one more way that this is important that we recognize. So first of all, it is present and it's future. It's not just about the future. But there's a second piece that comes along with that. Once you realize that it isn't just future, and it certainly isn't just past, it's, it's present future, 
But another very important piece comes with it, and this is, this is the one that will really come home when we talk about chapter 7, is also this is not just a prophetic book, it is a pastoral book. It is both. And too many people now go one side or the other, and that's the wrestle. You read one commentator, and he just reads the whole book as pastoral, and you go, yeah, there's some really good insights here, but I feel like something's missing. And then you read someone who's just all purely about the future, and they just view it all as a prophetic book, and you read it, and they're like, well, there's lots of good stuff in here. Clearly, it is a prophecy, but they're somehow missing it. I can't apply any of it to my life. But John clearly is writing a pastoral, but he's writing a prophecy. He said at the beginning, it's a prophecy, but he also says you need to apply it. And you can see him throughout the book, chapter after chapter after chapter, even as he describes terrible things, he is also seeking to encourage those first century believers. So this book has to be, as we read it, not only a present future lens as we look at the pages, we have to see it with a pastoral and prophetic lens. So that means when I read it, I read it and I see, yes, I see terrible judgments coming. I see God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom clashing. But at the same time in every chapter, if I'm not seeing encouragement for believers today and for myself, I've got one of my lenses is blinded and I'm missing what he's actually trying to say. Does that make sense? Because the book of Revelation is both pastoral and prophetic. Now, let's go back to Revelation 7, and let's see how this changes how you read it, okay? In the past, when I only viewed, and again, most of Revelation, I have not changed my view other than a huge pastoral element has been added. But this is one of those places where my view of who the 144,000 is has actually changed. See, if you're all futuristic in your lens, then you just automatically assume you're not looking for it to be pastoral or applicable in any way today. You just assume, well, this is talking about a small, tiny group of Jews in the future just before Jesus returns. But when you look at it with a pastoral and prophetic, now, and that might be true. It might, it might be true. It, it, maybe it is just supposed to be a small group of Jews in the future. But before I just let that go, now that I'm looking with a pastoral lens, I want to ask a couple of questions before I just take that for granted. Does that make sense? So I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Here are some of the questions I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask questions like, how would this have encouraged the first century readers? I'm not just going to assume this is a, a little tiny group of Jews in the future because, oh, if it is, it is. But if it doesn't speak to me pastorally, if it doesn't speak to the first century Christians, then maybe there's more going on here than what I originally assumed. Secondly, what does this have to do with the flow of the point John is making? And third, how can this be applied? Now, that last question, anybody who is just futurist in the book of Revelation is not asking that last question, or probably even the first question. So yes, definitely there is a huge prophetic future component, but there's also a pastoral component, okay? Now, when you ask these questions and you start to look deeper, uh, you, rather than just assuming it's a group in the, in, in, in the future, as you begin to look at it this way, I began to see all kinds of things that suggested to me that this 144,000 is symbolic of believers in general. Now, you say, well, why? If it's supposed to symbolize believers in general, 
would he talk about 144,000 Jews and then make a list, 12,000 from this tribe and 12,000 from this tribe and 12,000 from this tribe. It's like, why doesn't he just say it straightforward? Well, first of all, if he had just said it straightforward, we wouldn't have the book of Revelation now, would we? Okay? Fact of the matter is, we have to put ourselves in a different culture, in a different time period, and this was a way they had of writing. And you say, well, why did they write that way? Because cultures are different. If we wrote the Bible in Western modern culture, how would tribes in the Amazonian rain, you know, rainforest and Chinese people living in communist China, how would they understand what we had written? Fact of the matter is, there is no right or wrong here. There is just different cultures. And we have to get ourselves, sometimes in passages like this, we have to get ourselves out of, well, why didn't he just write it this way? The reason he didn't write it this way is because he wasn't like us. He lived in a totally different mindset at a totally different time. And he's using pictures to communicate things. Now, when we actually see what his picture is communicating, and that's where we're going to end this message, I think it's actually beautiful. But let me just show you four reasons first. And again, I don't care if you write these points down. I'm going to, again, at the end of this message, I'm going to sum it up what I, what I think chapter 7 is trying to teach us. And I really believe it's beautiful. But I'll just show you some things that suggest to me that the 144,000 are symbolic of all of us as believers, not just a small group of Jews in the future. So, four reasons I think it's symbolic. First of all, the flow of John's prophecy in these chapters is speaking to believers as a whole, not just some tiny group. So the flow of the chapter is very important. What's happening? Remember, and remember, there is no chapter break between 6 and 7. This is all part of the same thing. So let's review the order again just briefly. I've been doing this over and over again, but it's going to really get into your head. Uh, seal number five is about martyrs. And the martyrs are crying out for justice. God's persecuted Christians are in heaven and they're crying out for justice. Seal six is the day of the Lord and we see wrath come on the Lord. He's answering their prayers. He's going to return to earth and crush the wicked. That's what we saw last week. Now there's no chapter break in the, in the original. There's no break and now chapter seven. The very next thing after seal six is suddenly John's talking about 12,000 Jews who are sealed on their foreheads, okay? It doesn't fit the flow. If that's just about a specific little group of Jews in the future, it doesn't fit the flow, especially when you take into account the second half of chapter 7, which I'm going to tie all together for you in just a few minutes. The second half of chapter 7 is this multitude from every tribe and language and nation. It specifically says that, not just Jews. Every tribe and language and nation are in heaven praising God. So here we have the flow of the, the prophecy is martyrs from all the nations, day of the Lord, which affects all the nations, end of chapter 7, it's about all the nations, and in between, we have this, all of a sudden, if it's just about a little group of Jews in the future, it seems totally random. If it represents believers in general, it fits more with the flow. Now that's not, that doesn't mean this has to be absolutely right. I'm just looking at possibilities that suggest this is symbolic, okay? A second reason why I believe this is symbolic, something I've preached about before and actually talked about in my end times course, and, uh, and which I continue to agree with today because I was already wrestling with this back then. In Revelation chapter 9, just a little bit further on from where we are today, and I'll get there in a couple of weeks, we have this trumpet five, this demonic plague. And I'm going to read it to you. It says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, 
but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, here's the question that has come up every time when I've done an end time course or talked about revelation at all. People ask, well, wait a minute, because if you take the 144,000 as just literally a group of Jews in the future, then the only people who are sealed from this plague are those Jews in the future, not all believers. And I have taught all along, I've said, that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is actually to encourage believers, not to tell them, you're sunk except for this 144,000. And so I've already been teaching for years, based on Revelation 9, the point is, all of God's people are, are sealed. But that doesn't really make sense. I always just taught it that way and said, I can't really prove it to you, but because it only says 144,000 are sealed. But when you see the 144,000 as symbolizing believers in general, it makes total sense of the context of this passage, which is meant to encourage that God's people are sealed from this demonic plague. Third, okay, I'm just going to do four, and then we're going to actually look at what this does mean. I think 144,000, the number 144,000 should be a clue to us. It's a very symbolic-looking number in a book that uses numbers very symbolically. I'll show you a military census from the Old Testament in just a moment. When you do a real census, you don't get 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. You get numbers like 74,368 and 14,961. But 144,000 is exactly 12, which is a highly symbolic number in Revelation, times 12, symbolic, times 1,000, which anything by tens in the ancient world, again, was a sign of completeness. We've seen that elsewhere in the book. It's interesting. Now, maybe God just actually wants it to be a symbolic group, of, you know, that he just wants to get that number right. But it sure seems like a very convenient number. And now, especially when I tell you what I think this, these do symbolize, I'll show you how that fits with the context as well. And then the fourth reason why I believe the 144,000 are symbolic, not just an actual group of Jews in the future, is, is the fact that the 144,000 are all men, and they're all virgins, unmarried, and they're all blameless. And I think those things point to the fact that, again, this is, I mean, if he's only sealing unmarried men who are blameless, is he even going to find 144,000 on the earth? <laughs> but let's read this description in Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked. Let me find it on my thing here. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, that's Israel, in Israel there on Jerusalem, and with them 144,000. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women. I won't get into that. John has, seems to have a negative view here of, of, of sleeping with a woman when you're married. And that's, it's not a bad thing. It's a really good thing. But I'll just stop right there. But anyway, for they are virgins. Uh, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found. Now, right here should be, should be a suggestion that maybe this is symbolic. In their mouth, no lie was found. Okay, I'm pretty sure Jesus is the only one who has ever lived without sin. Okay, unless you're a baby, you know, who died at one hour or whatever. Maybe you died basically sinless, even, even if you've got a sin nature, right? But, but in it, no lie is found. So they're, they're all men and they're all unmarried and they're all considered blameless. To me, that makes it look increasingly like it's symbolic on an actual group of people. 
Because when you talk about believers in general, there's no person you can talk about as being blameless except for Jesus. But when you talk about believers in general, there's a sense in which Jesus' blood has saved us and there's a sense in which we're blameless. Not that we've never sinned, but that that's the way Jesus sees us, all right? So these are all reasons. None of these is 100% proof of my view. But what I'm going to show you now is what I think. And then every, every conclusion I'm going to draw from that completely works with the context of Revelation and with the teaching of Revelation. So every point I'm going to draw from what I think the 144,000 are is absolutely true. If I end up being wrong about the 144,000 themselves, then just lump me in with a whole pot of about 100,000 other pastors and, uh, because there's about 100,000 different ideas of what they are. Okay? I believe the reason God, that John talks about 144,000 men and lists them by tribes is I believe he is pointing us back to Old Testament. It looks a lot like an Old Testament census, military census. And I believe his picture there is seal number five, martyrs are crying out for justice, seal six, the day of the Lord. He's actually comforting them. Two things, that they're all sealed. But second of all, he's showing them that they're not vic- victims. They're not just martyrs. Actually, when God looks at this little army of persecuted Christians, that's what he sees them as, not a bunch of victims. He sees them as his army. Except that this army doesn't conquer by killing, it conquers by dying. Now, I'm going to show you a military census, and then I'm going to draw a bunch of conclusions, and I actually think it's the, most beautiful, uh, it's, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in chapter 7. But if we look at Numbers 1, I'll show you one example of a, of a military census, and then we'll, we'll uh, do chapter 7, and then I'll show you the practical end slide, which is the whole point of this whole thing. Anyway, Numbers chapter 1, the Lord spoke to Moses. This is, by the way, one of those passages most of you have many underlines and highlights in your Bible. It's your favorite devotional passage, okay? It's a great uh, census chapter. Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male. Because in those days, that's why, that's why I believe this is talking about an army. Why he says the 144,000 are all men. It's not because God isn't sealing women. It's because in those days, only men fought. Okay? So if you want it to look like a military census, you can't have it men and women. From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. Now, I'll just show you just a couple of examples. I won't do the whole list, but verse 20, the people of Reuben, 46,500. Okay? Then we go on to Simeon. The people of Simeon, every male 20 years old and upward, 59,300. Notice that those numbers are not multiples of 12. They're not multiples of 7. They're just real numbers. The people of Gad, 20 years old and upward, who are able to go to war, 45,650. The people of Judah, 74,600, and on and on and on. It looks like a military census just without the symbolic numbers, okay? Because that's what this is, all right? So now, if the 144,000 represent God's army here on earth, then there's a number of things we can take from this picture, okay? First of all, I want you to notice that their number is small. 144,000 is not a big army, it's, it's small. And that's really important because when you look at our, and, and it's important that these 144,000 are not seen in heaven, they're seen on earth. That's going to be important when we get to the second half of chapter 7 in just a minute. Okay? When you look at the people of God here on earth, we always look like a small remnant. We always look overwhelmed. This is a truth throughout history. It's a truth today. We look at our country today and we're one of the better countries to be a Christian in and we look outnumbered. We look marginalized when it comes to politics, when it comes to all media, all kinds of things. It seems like we have less and less say. It seems like people care less and less. In fact, more and more people seem to be against Christian values. 
And you look around the world, and it certainly looks outnumbered. And this is how it always looks, and Revelation shows us that. When we look at the people of God on the earth, it doesn't look like we're a massive army. It looks like we're a little remnant. We're like Gideon's men. We're just this little group, okay? Second of all, I think this 144,000, the fact that they're that number, it's such a perfect number. If we go to, to verse 11, Al, I'm just going to skip ahead to verse 11 there in uh, Revelation. It says this, Revelation chapter 6, verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until their, the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Remember we looked at that? That God actually has a number in heaven. It's a perfect number because he's sovereign. And it's not going to be one more. It's not going to be one less. There's a perfect number who are going to be martyred and persecuted. And then he's going to come back and it won't be any more. And we see with this 144,000 too, it's a symbolic number, but it's a perfect number. 12 by 12 by 1,000. It's this little group, but it's God's number. It's God's people. And in his sight, they are blameless and pure. Now the thing, the difference here, the contrast between God's army on earth and Satan's army is huge. In the book of Revelation, Satan's army and empire is likened to a dragon, to a beast. It's devouring, it's hordes. Later on, we're going to see some chapters where we talk about armies and they're in the millions, but God's got this little remnant. Satan's army is big, angry, violent. God's army is small, pure, and blameless, and they fight with completely different weapons. They fight with completely different weapons. Look at this, Revelation chapter 12. And they, that's the saints, have conquered him, that's Satan, by three things, not with violence. And by the way, I'm not against all violence. I'm not a pacifist. We're talking about advancing the gospel and Jesus' kingdom. We don't advance Jesus' kingdom with violence. Whatever our country needs to go to war and Christians feel called to be soldiers, that's perfectly acceptable. But that's not what this is about. You don't advance, you don't convert anyone by force. And as Christians, we don't fight as a Christian army against anyone. That's not the way Jesus advances his kingdom. But he says this, and they have conquered him, that's Satan, by the blood, three things, by the blood of their lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. This is what our, we fight with. We fight with the courage to talk to people about the love of Jesus, even when they don't want us to. And then, look at this, and they love not their lives even to death. Satan's army tries to win by killing. This army does the exact opposite. It wins by dying for others and for Jesus. You can almost picture this little army as an army of sheep. And the devil's laughing because he's a raging beast. I'm going to slaughter all you sheep. And yet the more he kills and crushes the sheep, the more the sheep actually win. Just like when Jesus went to the cross and the devil thought he had won, it was at the moment he was dying on the cross that he was winning. And that's the way this army wins, pure and blameless. Our weapons are not violence, hate, anger, loudness. Our weapons are love, generosity, kindness, forgiveness. These are our weapons. And now look, right after, now this is all together, there's no chapter headings, there's no breaks in the original. We go from seals five and six, the martyrs, the justice, 144,000 sealed, right after that, and this is why I think it makes more sense in the flow, right after that, we see this very next thing it says. Now they're going to see what things look like in heaven. The very next verse. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. In the end, the Great Commission is going to get completed, and God's going to do it through this little remnant on earth. See, on the earth, God's army looks small, 
and it looks frail and it looks weak. But in heaven, the results are huge. On earth, it looks like we're way outnumbered. It looks like we're not making any difference. Sometimes it feels like it's insignificant. What, what purpose do our prayers have? What purpose does our evangelism have? We're not, it doesn't look sometimes like we're changing anything in the culture. But when you look in heaven, you see people from every tribe and language and nation and people. The church is winning. And we will uh, finish the Great Commission. And your efforts for Jesus, even if you don't see what you think, humanly speaking, are huge results, you don't know the fruit that is being reaped every time you suffer well for Jesus and every time you obey and are faithful in a place you're at. We're a little remnant on the earth, but we're an army, an army of sheep willing to lay down our lives for the lamb. Standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and, the, and to the Lamb. And then I'll read you two more verses here. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know, and he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, here's a perfect verse that shows us present future. There is a specific fulfillment of this in the end. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 24 that the gospel is going to go to every ethnic group. And that's going to be completed in the days just before Jesus returns. In this time of terrible tribulation and this antichrist empire, the church is actually going to complete it and Jesus is going to come back. So it's actually going to, coming out of great tribulation and people from every language, nation, tribe, it's going to happen. But the thing is, it's already happening now. Already we're working on the Great Commission. Already there's tribulation. And it's not just in persecuted countries in the world. Already now there's tribulation. Christians are going through things that aren't directly tied to persecution, but people are going through sickness and disease, things that Jesus is going to absolutely conquer when he returns and when we are resurrected. And the point is, so we enter into the kingdom through suffering. So whatever the suffering is in your life right now, Jesus and the book of Revelation are saying to you, suffer well. This is what my little army does. They love and they suffer well. They don't rage. They don't get bitter. They love and they suffer well. They're coming out of great tribulation. It looks small and it looks painful, but up in heaven, the fruit is huge. And the Great Commission, the devil ultimately is not going to be able to stop us. So let me sum up what we learn about God's army and about the people of God from the picture of the 144,000. First of all, God's army looks small and insignificant here on earth. And that will always be. It will always be that way here on earth. But in the future, we're going to see in heaven, and it's going to be, the Great Commission is complete. It's going to be awesome. And Satan has been defeated. God's army conquers by dying, not killing. We need to remember that. Even when we take stands on important issues as Christians here in our culture, even as we take stands, and we do have to take stands. And sometimes when we take a stand for truth, the culture is going to, going to, going to accuse us of being hateful. That doesn't mean we're actually being hateful, but we need to make sure we're not being hateful. We need to make every stand in kindness and love and goodness. God's army is sealed. You are sealed. That doesn't mean you won't suffer things in this life, but you are sealed by God. He is watching over your soul and he will give you victory. God's army has huge impact that can be seen in heaven. And again, like I said, even if I'm a little bit wrong about the 144,000, Every one of these other things is absolutely true to the teaching of Revelation and Scripture. These are all things we can stand on from chapter 7. God's army loves, sacrifices, and suffers. God considers his army blameless. 
I'm going to take a moment and I'm just going to share a couple of things and then we're going to pray. This requires a new mentality. If God sees us as a little remnant army on the earth, then that means we have to have a certain mindset if we're going to be part of that army of sheep going to the slaughter in order to win. It means we have to have a mindset that we see preached throughout the Gospels, which is that we lay down our lives for Jesus. To be part of God's little remnant, 144,000, means we're not just floating through life. We're part of a remnant that wins by dying. Now, most of us will not ever physically be killed for our faith. Most of us will not, I don't think, anyway. But that doesn't mean we can't be part of this army. It means we're willing to lay down our lives in the lives that we have. It doesn't mean just physically dying. It means laying down our lives wherever we are. And so the question is today, are we willing to be part of that 144,000, part of that army of those who give up their lives for Jesus? Now, what this does not mean. I know often how in North America, Christians sitting in a service like this, and you hear a call, we've got to give up our lives for Jesus. Many of us are going to feel, because we're going to listen in just a moment, we're going to pray. Many people will feel guilty, and they think God is calling them to more busyness. And I want to just get this out of the way right now. I don't think the call to lay down our lives for Jesus, for most of us, means more busyness. See, a lot of Christians have this condemnation thing that if I'm going to lay down my life for Jesus, that means I've got to be out serving in the church more evenings of the week. And as much as I, from a human side, would love you all to be here serving more evenings in the week, it's actually not the right thing to do, and you shouldn't be here every night serving. It also does not mean you're out every night or every weekend evangelizing. As good as that is, these are really good things. By the way, Chris Puget is doing all kinds of training with people and taking people out evangelizing, and I love it. And you get fired up for evangelism. My point is that if your automatic default is to feel guilty, I need to be out more evenings evangelizing. I need to be out more evenings serving because I got to lay my life down for the, I'm, a, I'm part of God's army. That means I do more stuff. That is not the answer. The answer is not more busyness. You will wear yourself out and you'll have no love to give because we win by loving, not by being so busy we just about drop. So the answer, how do I lay down my life for Christ? Now, there might be some cases where people are just outright lazy or not doing anything for the Lord. Yes, he might be calling you to do more. But many people, I think, in our culture are already very busy. Many of you are. So what does it mean for you to lay down your life to become a sheep willing to go to die? I'll tell you what it means. It doesn't mean you add necessarily more things to your life right now. It means you lay down your life to Jesus in the things you're already doing. So for example, let's say you play hockey. Okay, many people like to play hockey here in this province, right? So you like to play hockey. The point of this message is not if you're going to lay down your life for Jesus, it means laying down hockey. Because that's how a lot of people just automatically take it. I have to lay down hockey. I have to lay down volleyball. I have to lay down basketball. I have to lay down music so that I can do more stuff in a church. That's actually not the point of laying down your life for Jesus. Because if we all did that, who would reach the hockey players and basketball players and musicians for Jesus? We're an army of sheep that's supposed to win the lost by going and giving our lives for Jesus and for them in love to show them the love of Christ. So yeah, there might be some people where a sport or music or something has become, uh, you know, something that is actually has become... Um, 
detrimental to their life. It's actually ruining their family because they're too busy and it's ruining their, their life because it's too much. That's certainly a point. You might have to pull back or whatever. But the point of this message isn't lay down your life means you automatically give up hockey and sports and music. What it means is when you go to play hockey, you're not just going because you want to win, even though you do want to win. You're not just going because it's fun. You're actually going there to be a light on that team. And giving up your life doesn't mean giving up hockey necessarily. What it means is being willing to have the courage to stand for truth and goodness in the dressing room, even if that's very hard. It means having the desire to sacrifice and reach out and be friends with some other people on the team, not just leaving right away after because you're so busy with other stuff, but actually building some relationships. If you're a parent of a hockey player, it doesn't mean that you necessarily just pull your, your kid out and do other stuff, do church stuff only. It means now that instead of just screaming and, and living vicariously through your kids' success, it means you actually take time to maybe get to know some of the other parents and then you lay down your life for Christ because you're not just there to have an easy relationship. You're there to draw them towards Jesus, to love them and talk to them about Jesus and show them the love of Jesus. And that same thing goes for family and music and school and all those sorts of things. The point the, Jesus' army of sheep does not pull out of everything. It goes into everything with the love of Jesus and then lays down its life in those things for people and for Jesus. Share one story and then we'll pray. I heard of a, a woman. This is just a great example. This is not the way it's going to be with everybody. This is just one example. I just heard of recently a, a, a woman. I was giving a presentation to all the, the cell leaders just a few weeks ago because our, our camp dining hall is literally, the building is rotting away and we will need to, to build a new one. Uh, or because this, yeah, it's just an old building. But anyway, and I'll talk to you more about that in the, in the coming weeks and stuff. But anyway, after the presentation, a woman came. I didn't talk to her personally. She talked to one of our staff and then came to talk to me. This woman was very close to retiring from her job. And nothing wrong with retiring. This isn't, you know, we're not setting down rules or legalism, nothing like that. But after seeing the presentation and praying, her heart was just gripped. And she said, I still have energy to keep working and someone's got to invest in these kids. And so she decided against retiring now, she's going to keep working so that she can keep giving, so we can keep discipling kids. Now, you know what that is? That's she's not talking about being more busy. It's about laying down your life for the, for the sake of the kingdom, this little remnant army that's advancing God's kingdom and living for Jesus, not just for ourselves. So I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and we're just going to take a moment and listen to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to each of us here today? We want to lay our lives down for you. And that does not mean a whole bunch of new busyness. It means laying our lives down for you in the places you've already called us and put us. So what are you saying to each of us today? How can we be that, that army of sheep willing to die for you that others can know you as well. Thank you, Jesus, that we could come here 
to serve you today. We want to serve you better. Not with busyness. I really pray that you would lift that condemnation. People who feel the need to always be more busy in order to please you. Show us how to lay our lives down for you in our workplaces this week. When we are at sporting events. When we're doing things with friends. That we reach out to our neighbors. And that we would be your light. Shining your love and generosity and kindness to the world. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen.